You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. The idea that has always fascinated me about dreams is everything within that dream is created by your own mind as you experience it. You remember the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. Have you ever had a dream, Leo, that you were so sure was real? Once you were able to wake from that dream, how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? Hello and welcome back to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast. This is episode 14. And today I have Andrew Holacek uh, as a special guest. Uh, Andrew, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my delight, Jay. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. So I think... Uh, I wanted you perhaps to introduce yourselves. I can I, introduce yourself here. I, I can try to do it, but I'm probably not going to do uh, uh, it justice. So I wanted you to uh, take a chance and, and, and say who you are and, and what you do and why perhaps you're on the podcast today. Sure, sure. Well, I'm a, a longtime student of uh, the arts of sleep and dream. Um, you know, I've been involved in, in lucid dreaming probably for gosh, at this point, some 40 years, I would say. <clears throat> and uh, I'm a longtime student, probably three-decade student of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And so when I was able to discover the kind of confluence of uh, Western lucid dreaming with the <clears throat> ancient art of dream yoga, as the Tibetans put it forth, <clears throat> I realized I it kind of hit the um, j- jackpot here. So uh, I'm an author. I've written several books. Um, Actually, I have uh, three books out now, and a fourth book I'm working on, a rather extensive tome on uh, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, and sleep yoga, um, conjoining those three disciplines together. Um, I have a background in classical music and physics. I make my living as a a doctor of dental surgery, and uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm off here skiing in the mountains in Colorado. Maybe playing a little bit of tennis. So, in a nutshell, <laughs> that's kind of who I am. Cool, uh, a dentist too. I would not have guessed that. That's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it works. Actually, we have a little foundation, parenthetically, that for the last, I guess, almost fifteen years now, we've worked in six or seven different countries, mostly in Asia, called uh, Global Dental Relief. So that's um, a bit of a bit of a baby of mine that I've nurtured along with the co-founder, and um, it's a wonderful enterprise. For those of you interested in doing some volunteer work in really wonderful different countries in Asia. Just look that site up and there's lots, lots of opportunities. Very cool. I'll, I'll put a, a link in the show notes for this. Um, cool. You can send it to me later. Absolutely. So actually one of my listeners, uh, Mike, um, introduced me to your audio program called Dream Yoga, The Tibetan Path of Awakening Through Lucid Dreaming. And uh, I listened to it and it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. And this is why I reached out to you and wanted to to bring you on uh, and ask you some questions and, t- and talk about it a little bit. And yeah. to, to be honest, um, when I started uh, talking about and writing about lucid dreaming and starting the podcast, um, I had the assumption, I don't know where, where from, that most people who are interested in lucid dreaming either don't know about dream yoga or are not interested in spirituality. Sure. I, I know that I have a very sort of scientifically oriented mind. 
Um, but at the same time, an, an inquisitive mind that has, you know, been meditating for several years and sort of inquiring into the nature of our own mind and our own consciousness and always been fascinated with dreams, which are very um, unique uh, experience that we actually all share. Right. So uh, it was it was kind of a pleasure to find out slowly but surely with interaction with my 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 uh, little audience um, how many people actually uh, are really open to to these ideas to these practices and so on. So uh, I'm glad to uh, to have you here to talk about it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think as you know, you know, especially in the last year or so, there's been a quite an explosion of interest in in the world of lucid dream. Um, probably two, three, four books out just this year, and, and I know. Actually, right about now, a release of a 700-page anthology is about to be um, uh, released. So there's a lot of dreaming in the air these days. And, and I think it's interesting, you know, I'll be curious to see where we go with the conversation, but it's a, kind of a fortuitous time to explore aspects of dream yoga and, and its relationship to lucid dreaming. In other words, what exactly is it? Um, what can you do with it? And what are the potentialities there? So um, I think we'll have a little fun here. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I guess the, my first question would be um, because I, I've I think I've made the mistake of talking about dream yoga in the past as as just the Tibetan Buddhist version of lucid dreaming, but in your program mm -hmm. you you sort of talk about the differences. So perhaps if you want to just say what dream yoga is and how it differs from just lucid dreaming in general. Yeah, yeah, that's a great place to start. Well, I think most of your listeners know what lucid dreaming is. Of course, you know it's this magnificent state of awareness where you wake up within the dream and you realize you're still dreaming. Um, and what dream yoga does is it, in a certain sense, it, you know, it uses lucid dreaming as a platform um, because, you know, as you know, lucid dreaming in and of itself doesn't particularly constitute a path, whether that's either psychological or spiritual. I mean, really, most people, me included, when they first get involved or interested in, in lucid dreaming, it's really a way, you know, to uh, just have a really great time and also to maybe explore a little bit how your mind functions in, in the arena of, of the dream. Um, but until one actually engages consciousness or awareness in that state, um, it doesn't really constitute any type of path. In other words, there isn't any uh, particular inherent developmental or evolutionary process in lucid dreaming um, uh, in and of itself. And in fact, from a Buddhist point of view, uh, if intention is involved, karma is created. So if you're involved in a lucid dream and you're having just a heck of a good time, which most of us do initially, um, it's karmically, it's not tax-free um, because you're actually, even from a neuroplasticity point of view, you know, you're, you're habituating your mind to certain patterns and you can do that in, in the dream state um, just as much as you can in waking consciousness. And of course, you know, quite a few writers, particularly Stephen LeBerge and others, have talked about the psychological aspects of lucid dreaming. So the way dream yoga fits in, interestingly enough, in the Tibetan tradition, dream yoga came about, um, and really when we talk about dream yoga in Buddhism, we're pretty much talking about um, Tibetan Buddhism, as far as I can tell. I, I don't really know. I mean, there's a lot of tributed dreams in different schools of Buddhism, but as an actual yoga, as an actual exercise or path, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and also the, the Bun tradition of Tibet, they're the only ones I'm aware of that actually have full-blown stages and methodologies associated with it. 
Um, but in, in the Tibetan tradition, dream yoga came about really principally as a way to prepare for death. It's a, a, a subset of what one could call um, bardo yoga. Bardo is a, a Tibetan word which refers to a kind of gap or transitional process. Um, it really relates to any gap between two states of consciousness. It's a vast topic in and of itself, but in the grandest scheme, it refers to the gap between lives, if you believe in that kind of stuff. Um, so it came about principally as a way to prepare for death, because according to the Tibetans, the type of terrain that one experiences after mind and body separate, and again, this takes, you know, it's assuming a, certain, a few things, that, that mind and body are not the same. Um, but the Tibetans assert that as the mind journeys um, beyond, it's a highly confluent or resonant state to what we experience in the, the dream state and also even more profoundly in deep sleep. Um, there's also, as, as you probably know, uh, another yoga that's even deeper than dream yoga, which is called sleep yoga, which is a, a set of practices that are designed to allow you to maintain awareness as unbelievable as it may initially seem in deep dreamless sleep. Um, so there's, you know, it's a vast arena of the mind. It's a Dream yoga is a marvelous um, laboratory of the mind. And in the Tibetan tradition, there are several different lineages. We can speak more specifically about those if you're interested. But it, it, it actually can constitute, for those who have a predisposition or a talent for it, it literally can constitute a complete path to um, awakening or enlightenment altogether. And there's a number of supreme masters in the Tibetan tradition in particular, the most famous one being the, His Holiness the First Karmapa, who supposedly attained his full-blown awakening through dream yoga. So, you know, I'll pause and we can take this conversation in a number of different directions, but it's a vast topic that uses lucid dreaming as a platform. You know, as, as my teachers always say, no dreams, no lucid dreams, no lucid dreams, no dream yoga. There is, there is this particular sequence involved and, and really dream yoga, um, in a certain sense, picks up where lucid dreaming leaves off, one could say and allows uh, a very subtle, sophisticated exploration of mind through a graded series of meditations, that, that some of which are really um, quite esoteric and quite profound. So, Wow, yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many ways we can take this conversation, and I do have um, a bunch of questions that I want to ask, and we can uh, dive into it. And I guess I'll, I'll preface it with um, the process I've been through in terms of just my my understanding and introduction to this sort of subject, uh, because I, I do consider myself, as I said, sort of uh, scientifically oriented mind, uh, um, perhaps a skeptic even at times. What I've discovered uh, in my own experience is that, uh, what, one, I mean, I think, um, you know, the... Uh, Buddhist traditions and their practices uh, all the way through. Uh, the best example is, of course, meditation, uh, which on its own, by the way, seems to be um, proving as one of the most phenomenal tools to achieve uh, higher consciousness, better consciousness, and, and so lucid dreaming almost uh, without any other practice just on its own, just like dream, uh, dream recall uh, through uh, journaling for exactly. writing down your dreams. Uh, but meditation that has been, you know, I think considered for the longest time just something that, you know, strange monks do uh, somewhere has been not only integrated into Western culture more and more, but to the scientific community and proving uh, tremendous 
health benefits, psychological benefits, uh, as well as many other things um, just out of meditation itself. And for me, that was, to say, enlightening about perhaps all these processes that we're not familiar with and we don't know, but there are people who have been doing it for many, many years, even thousands of years, uh, and kind of know the benefits of them. It doesn't mean that anything that's been practiced for thousands of years is by default good, but this right. is proving to, to be uh, very efficient. And so when I was introduced, I mean, the, your, your program is, and like you mentioned, is called uh, Path to Awakening Through Lucid Dreaming, and you mentioned enlightenment. And when I first heard about that, um, I was trying to, to, to understand it and figure it out better. So before I dove the questions about that, perhaps if you want to, um, if you want to explain what, what awakening or enlightenment is, I know it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> in some yeah, sense. it's a monumental question, but you know, if you don't mind, yeah, I want to backpedal for just one brief second and talk sure. a little bit about, you know, the relationship of meditation to lucid yes. dreaming and dream yoga. And then we'll definitely come back to this, this mysterious topic of enlightenment. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's, it's a, a really interesting um, kind of connection between lucidity that's achieved um, in the dream state and really the, the lucidity or lack thereof that we have in relationship to the contents of our mind even now. And um, by this, where I'm, where I'm heading is that the reason we're non-lucid to our dreams at night, <clears throat> most of us really, the vast majority of the time, we're non-lucid to our dreams it's, it's, uh, it's as Kabir once said of death, he said, you know, what is found then is found now. And the same thing applies to the kind of the phenomenology of the mind. What is found then in the dream state is found now in the waking state. So I, I know several neuroscientists um, have estimated, and it's difficult to give a, a very accurate number here, of course, but several neuroscientists have estimated that we are aware of less than 1% of what goes on in our own minds. You know, um, 99% of what takes place in our mind, we are non-lucid too. So it's no wonder, therefore, that we're non-lucid to the contents of our mind when we're asleep. It's just a, a you know, larger expression of that lack of awareness. So there's a very profound and intimate connection between meditation and lucid dreaming. And this, of course, is why dream yoga is, you know, it's, it's in the family of meditations altogether. And really, as I think you intimated, that um, one of the most important um, practices for increasing stability in a lucid dream, clarity and lucidity altogether, is in fact is basic, over-the-counter, non-sectarian mindfulness meditation. And if you sit down and bear witness, which you can you know, do in just a matter of a few minutes, you simply bear witness to the way your mind operates now, and you will realize why you're non-lucid to your dreams at night. So when one sits down in meditation, it doesn't even have to be Buddhist. I mean, the, the classic mindfulness meditation that the Buddha inherited, and that now is the, you know, the, the subject of over 500 studies a year. I'm actually writing two books on this topic right now. This particular form of, of mindfulness called shamatha, the Buddha did not invent this. This was part of the Brahmanical tradition, and he accepted it and used it just because it was so extraordinarily effective. So, um, to me, it's terribly exciting that, you know, in this age of distraction, um, we have a kind of a co-emergent antidote, which is this revolution in meditation that's taking place. And I work quite closely with a lot of the people who are associated with these studies. Richie Davidson and Antoine Lutz are good friends. I've been in their fMRIs, that kind of thing. But really, the, the take-home point here that I would really like to emphasize to your listeners is that if one engages in simple, classic, over-the-counter mindfulness meditation, 
um, it will have a profound effect on one's ability to stabilize and increase lucidity in dreams. And very often when I do my dream yoga teaching programs, I will do an informal poll. And invariably, every single time, um, there's a direct proportionality between those who meditate and those who have lucid dreams. So it's a, it's a wonderfully organic and one, one understands the nature of mind and the way mind works and expresses itself in these different dimensions, these different um, states of consciousness, whether it's waking or, or dreaming, you realize there's a very intimate connection that, you know, that one can engage to increase lucidity both in dream and um, in waking consciousness. And dream yoga uses this kind of reciprocating um, phenomena to its advantage. So really what what we do in the daily life and our daily life powerfully affects our dreams, obviously. What we do in our dreams can powerfully affect our waking consciousness. And this is where dream yoga actually becomes a yoga, um, where you, you can really profoundly shape your mind and train your mind in the dream state um, as, uh, as a way to really increase one's awareness during the day and fundamentally transform perception altogether. So this is what, to me, is so terribly exciting, that it's not just about what you do at night. Um, when dream yoga is fully engaged and understood, you're, you're basically working with the, the basis of all phenomena, you know, kind of the DNA of your experience, which is mind itself. You know, as it says in the Pali Canon, um, I guess if there is a Bible in, in the Buddhism altogether, it would be the Pali Canon. A very famous line there says, the mind leads all things. So by working with the mind in the laboratory of sleep and dream, one can extrapolate the insights gleaned from that laboratory and immediately apply them to one's life. And, and I can uh, promise you this from my own experience in doing it for 30 years, change your life through the medium of the dream. So uh, maybe I can pause there for just a second, and then <laughs> I will return to this issue of awakening, which is you know, a marvelously rich topic, but um, maybe we can... Sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that in my personal experience, and I've been meditating somewhat regularly for about six years now, um, and it has definitely transformed my my sleeping awareness and sleeping consciousness and, and, and in lucid dreams as well. But in talking about the day-to-day, -day, uh, just regular awareness of what's going on in your mind, it has been remarkable. And just starting to, when I started meditating, um, just becoming of aware of how much you were unaware before, let alone I can't imagine like what else I might find out as I continue to meditate on a regular basis, but just discovering how much um, stuff that was going on, even sort of at the surface that, that I was just not really aware of, not really conscious, as, conscious of or registering was... Uh, amazing to discover i mean it's just it's almost absurd because you're like how is this not not very clear until now isn't it true yeah yeah it's interesting that's a very profound statement because you know in that regard as you know meditation is both a diagnosis and the cure <laughs> um, and really in so many ways what it does and, and this is i think an important interjection and a bit of a pep talk because very often people get frustrated when they begin to meditate and they realize you know, I, I, my mind was never this crazy, things seemed to be getting worse. Well, that's actually not true. You're, you're simply realizing for the first time just how wild and untamed and discursive your mind actually is. So when, we, when you, you, know, you talk about this unawareness, um, that's really, a, you know, being unaware of the content of our mind is really just a synonym for being asleep to the contents of our mind. 
So therefore, when we when the tradition talks about enlightenment, which by the way is of course a Western word, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, um, we talk more a little bit specifically about awakening, and uh, you know, awakening um, and becoming simply more aware. So then, you know, the question for me is very interesting. It's like, well, what are you what are you waking up from, and what are you waking up to? Um, and this is one of the I think the central charters that both Dream and Sleep Yoga can really, um, you know, offer in terms of exploring deeply what this re- what it refers to. But really, but what we're doing is when we wake up in a spiritual sense, we're waking up from a reality that so painfully and paradoxically we assume to be solid, lasting, and independent, which virtually for every person I'm sure that would be listening to this program, that that's axiomatic. That's a given. Well, what do you mean the world is solid, lasting, and independent? Which is just another way, of course, of talking about duality. So being asleep, and I'm sure you've discussed the idea of dream signs in your program. You know, dream signs are very, very skillful ways to work with triggering lucidity within the context of the dream. Um, a very humbling and, and actually very difficult proclamation from the Buddhist tradition is that if you look out upon this world and you can just look ahead and, and onto any object in front of you, and if you see what you see as solid, lasting, and independent, according to this tradition, you're asleep. That's what it means to be asleep. So uh, what do we wake up to then? What did the Buddha wake up to? And parenthetically, as you probably know, the Buddha basically, um, etymologically, comes from the root B-U-D-H, which means to... Um, fundamentally awaken or to know. So the Buddha is simply the, the awakened one. So right even in his title, there's a very interesting intimation towards well, what, you know, how does this, what does this really mean and how might this connect to what we can come back to later as the double delusion of the dream state. So what I think is very, um, I don't know, I guess you could simply say fascinating is that we wake up from a, real, a reality that seems to be solid, lasting, and independent. That's what it means to be asleep in a spiritual sense. And we wake up to a reality that's fundamentally illusory. We wake up to a, a reality that's non-dual, that's very fluid, that's very dreamlike. And if, if one simply settles into that assertion, even on an intuitive level, um, let alone really exploring it in their practices called the loose reform practices, which we can return to later, what are perhaps the central differentiating factor between lucid dreaming and dream yoga are the daytime practices, meditation we already referred to, and the loose reform even more powerfully. Um, if you really touch into the notion that this world that we seem to see as solid, lasting, and independent is actually simply a world of, of flux and fluidity, i.e. dreamlike, then you start to get a sense of why it is that on a very deep psychological, egoic level, we run around and, and, and subconsciously and constantly freeze this world, this fluid dreamlike world, we freeze it in our egoic image. We're like, you know, the proverbial King Midas, where, um, as you know, King Midas, everything he touched with his, um, you know, finger, whatever, turned into gold. Well, we're very much like King Midas in the sense that everything we touch with our senses, we unwittingly transform into ego's version of gold, which is what? A solid, lasting, and independent reality. So within the context of the nighttime practices, enlightenment, 
Um, and again, it's a monumental topic. Enlightenment simply means waking up from this dualistic reality, which is really the source of all our suffering. And we wake up to a dreamlike reality, which is fundamentally what liberation um, means. And this is the charter of, of dream yoga. And what it does is, it, as I alluded to earlier, it takes what's referred to as the example dream, i.e. our nighttime dreams, or also sometimes called the double delusion, the nighttime dream. And then you take those insights gleaned from the night and you apply them to the primary delusion. And the primary delusion is in fact, and this is what it means to be ignorant or asleep in the spiritual sense, is to see the world dualistically. And we can, we can spin back upon this. Um, Jay, there's so much to say here. Um, I, I figure, again, I'll pause again and we can see if you have any comments or... Oh, definitely. And, and I want to be conscious of your time. So No, uh, I'm good. I've got time, so no worries. Fantastic. Uh, and I do want to get back. I did want to ask you about the practice of uh, illusory form. Um, but before that, perhaps uh, I'll share my um, a perspective or sort of how I was introduced to this concept um, and... You can you can uh, uh, maybe comment on that because yeah. when I when I heard about uh, enlightenment or, or awakening, uh, and it was introduced m- more or less in, in a similar way where you know the day to day waking life is not quite as it seems, um, right. and there is you know an experience through which can occur randomly, uh, coincidentally, or or through some sort of uh, a practice. Um, where you wake up to that understanding, that realization that things are not as they seem and, they, and you finally see them as they actually are. I understand that that's hard to even describe what that is like or how different it is from, from what you see right now. But when somebody mentioned um, the sort of parallel of becoming lucid in a dream, it just hit me and made perfect sense for the first time as because I've had the experience of being in a dream and I've had the experience of being in many, many dreams where at the time, while you're in the dream, you take it to be as real as anything else. And sometimes in, in specific nights, is, it is as vivid as daily life, not just the feeling and experience that what you're happen, happening to you is, is real, despite being a, completely fabrica- a complete fabrication of your mind, which is just amazing on its own. Uh, if we stop and think about the fact that our mind creates uh, a photorealistic, you know, virtual reality every night and puts ourselves in it somehow is, is on its own just unbelievable when you stop and think about it. But having had the experience of being in that state, believing this is real uh, and solid and concrete and all of those, and then waking up, not out of the dream into my bed, but waking up within the dream and seeing suddenly nothing nothing that I see actually change. The scenery is the same, the experience is the same, but suddenly just absolutely realizing that that is just a dream and everything I'm seeing is not really as real. The experience is real, but things that I'm seeing, there's no trees, there's no stones, it's not really yeah. concrete. And yeah. having that experience, and I'm sure that my, my audience ha- have had, m- hopefully most of them have had this experience, can sort of understand the parallel. Like you can be in an experience that you believe to be reality, waking reality, and wake up within it to suddenly see its true nature. Exactly. Um, Beautifully said. And, and I think that when, when I heard that kind of comparison, I, I'm sure it's not exactly the same, but that really made me stop and think, if I fell for that dream. That's it. That's maybe it. 
maybe I'm falling for another one. But then, yep. we, then came up the question, and this is something I wanted to ask you. Well, you know, the big dream, so to speak, is yeah. is consistent and concrete and a, a little more stable. And, you know, a, a dream, we have a different dream every night and it changes easily and it's, you know, kind of erratic and unstable. Whereas waking life is very solid. That's why we fall for it even more. Yeah. If we can have that awakening experience in waking life, how come it only takes a, a, a single thought in a dream to realize that that's a dream, but in waking life, it seems to at least some almost nearly impossible. It's just you can think about it, contemplate it, but it doesn't quite wake you up in the same way. Yeah, exactly. Way. Great question. Great question, Jay. And there's so much you said <clears throat> really I'd, love, I'd like to return to. I mean, there, the, the principal answer really is the power of habit. Um, you know, the, the power of habit, um, and I guess you could say paren karma, you know, I mean, karma, it's a tricky term, of course, it's probably the most complex term in Buddhism, let alone Hinduism, and it's so, you know, easily dismissed, but it's a very complex, sophisticated term. And, you know, uh, it rules our lives in so many different ways, and perhaps the most potently is through the, the raw force of habit. Um, so, the habituation, the grooves, it's, it, it's again, using this, this you know, marvelous recent, uh, well, recent, 20 years now, you know, this idea of neuroplasticity, how it is that, you know, repeated actions um, kind of trans, literally transform the structure of the brain. So neuroplasticity is actually, you could say it's a kind of a, a, a biological, physiological correlate to the, to the mechanics of karma altogether. They work very, very similar. You know, the more the mind moves in a particular direction, the more the brain circuits are cut in that direction, the more habit is, is accrued in that direction, and the more karma, the more momentum is accrued in that direction. And, and we have been trained, you know, from, from day zero, from day one in this life by our parents, by our teachers, by virtually everyone around us to see this particular world the way we do. Um, but it, it's simply not the case. It's exactly what you're alluding to. There is a profound um, and a very critical difference between appearance and reality. And what happens is, is, is you were intimating, Jay, is we, we are duped. We fall for appearance. We think that appearance is reality. So I think one could really argue that in, in a large sense, the entire path of awakening, spiritual path, whatever you want to call it, psychological, these I don't really care what you call it. My background, like yours, was originally in, you know, after music, it was science. I mean, I studied physics. So I don't really care what discipline arouses me from my slumber. I don't care what you call it. As long as it wakes me up, I'm there. Um, so, you know, what happens through the power of, of habit and the inculcation of this worldview brought about by this, you know, massive delusion that we all share, we have simply come to see the world this way. Um, and what, what dream yoga and the spiritual traditions do is, is first of all, they don't um, deny the, the, um, the nature of appearance altogether. If you did that, you know, that's the, the era of nihilism, the deconstruction and all the errors associated with that. What the, what the awakening traditions do is they challenge the status of that appearance. And, and they ask, you know, as many spiritual seekers or psychological speakers eventually do, is this all there is? Is this truly the way it is? And so many traditions, so many wisdom traditions, and even science, you know, physics says the world isn't this way. Cognitive science says the world isn't this way. And by the way, I, I draw a lot on both of those. We can definitely come back to talk about how it is that even from a hardcore 
um, neuroscientific point of view or a physical point of view. Um, both these noble traditions tell you that you know the world is not the way it appears to be. So really what these traditions do is they, they're all about bringing appearance and harmony with reality. So when we talk about waking up to and from, we're waking up from appearance, we're waking up to reality. And in many ways, really my kind of archetypal definition of like, you know, when people ask me, what is Buddhism? I basically tell them Buddhism is a description of reality. Um, so in order to describe reality, it's very helpful to talk about um, reality in contrast to what? Reality in contrast to illusion, delusion, or the dream. So you start to see exactly that you were, as you were saying, that, you know, when we're in, in the dream state, we take it to be so bloody real. Why? Simply because of the power of our habit. Um, in the waking state, exactly the same process takes place. And there are other constraints there, which we can talk about kind of cosmologically, what's called karmic perception. There, there are really ways to answer these wonderful questions that you're asking. But uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, that when we, and again, to dovetail back to what you were saying, is that when you wake up within the dream, you know, classic lucid dreamer, you're not even doing dream yoga. What really transforms, and this in many ways is, I, I want to leave you all with some bullet points as we go through this, this little dialogue, is that fundamentally what happens is you're changing your relationship to appearance. That's the key, relationship. You're changing your relationship. So when you wake up within the context of a dream, all of a sudden, instead of being the victim of the dream, in other words, what does that mean? The victim of your own mind. Instead of becoming the victim of your own mind in a non-lucid dream, and again, extrapolate all these comments to waking reality, when you wake up to the fact that you are dreaming, all of a sudden what happens is the appearances still arise. What profoundly changes is your relationship to those appearances. And that's where liberation takes place because, you know, the, the highest teachings of the Buddhist tradition, what is what's referred to as Mahamudra or Dzogchen, they fundamentally say, and my experience certainly bears this out, is that whatever appears in mind and reality is inherently, fundamentally, perfectly pure. Um, you could even say um, divine, beatific, whatever. And um, wh where the problem, therefore, arises, and this is it really, if, if you really contemplate this deeply and, and, and take it to heart, it, it's a total game changer. Because what it means is that even right now, when you sit down and you look at your mind, when you sit down and you look at your world, the fundamental nature of whatever appears has this um, inherent um, perfection, inherent divinity, inherent um, sacred kind of nature. And if you truly get that in your bones, and, and we can dovetail into how you can, the practices actually bring this about, it, it changes everything. So everything continues to arise, thoughts continue to arise, dreams continue to arise, the phenomenal world continues to arise. You don't change that, but you change the way you relate to everything. And I, I love this because it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the Buddhist tradition would say this is a, a, what makes Buddhism a non-theistic. What it means is that you are not the victim of your uh, reality. You are the co-creator of your reality. And it is therefore uh, incumbent upon you as, a, as someone who may want to wake up or remove suffering to um, realize that if you want to um, change your mind in the deepest sense, change your mind, you can change your reality. And that's really the essence of this term enlightenment. Enlightenment means appearances still arise, but you're no longer duped by them. Um, you, you develop these kind of x-ray eyes. Um, you know, the practice of a looser form that we can come back to is really largely about cultivating this kind of x-ray vision. 
And when you have this kind of x-ray vision, of course, don't take it too literally, what you're doing is you're penetrating through the facade of appearance. You're penetrating through the illusion of solid lasting and independence into the reality behind that appearance. And once you do that, then you realize, my goodness, everything that arises, I don't really have to change a thing. The only thing I really need to change or at least work on is my relationship to what arises. And I find that very elegant and even scientific because it's really, you know, you want to get rid of your suffering. You want to achieve the so-called awakened state. Nobody's going to do it for you. You know, the Buddhists can't do it. Nobody can do it for you. It's the responsibility is your own. And the way we do that, of course, is by working through the medium of our mind because the mind really, as I alluded to earlier, mind not only leads all things, the mind co-creates all things, not in a solipsistic way, you know, the, the, the opposite extreme of, of nihilism and representationalism. Representationalism is another way to talk about solid, lasting, and independent. The opposite of that would be either solipsism or constructivism, which means, you know, I create my total reality. It's a very common New Age pathology. Um, and the idea is that there's a middle way. You know, you do not create this reality. You co-create it. And uh, you can change your relationship to it by realizing um, the extraordinary creative powers that you actually have. It's, it's also something that you mentioned. I think one of the great adventures of, of the, the, the Oneironaut, those who explore the, the realm of dream, is it's a marvelous arena to explore the extraordinary creative powers of the mind and how it is that the mind literally, again, within the double delusion of the dream is so powerful that we take the contents of this illusor, this mind, we take that content to be real. And this, of course, is why we have nightmares, why we suffer in our dreams. So if, if we can take these insights that we glean in the laboratory of lucid dreaming and dream yoga, extrapolate them, bring them back into this waking reality, and start to um, apply those insights into this life, this to me is what brings so much raw excitement and enthusiasm about the arena of lucid dreaming and dream yoga because it is a complete path in and of itself and a, and a marvelous way to bring psychological and spiritual practice into the otherwise darkness of the night. So Definitely. And I love the personal responsibility aspect of it where um, you, you, know, you stop kind of uh, relating to the world as it's always happening to me That's and right. I am sort of the, the victim of it. And you start seeing, and I, I know it, to at least a certain degree, because it's sort of multi-layered, but I know it from my own experience, when I start recognizing um, just how my current state of mind um, affects how I relate to the world, how I feel about things, I call it dirty lenses. When I have dirty lenses, Perfect. they're okay. just as if, and it, and it actually came about because I was driving one day and you know, five, 10 minutes into driving, I realized that I'm, I'm getting sort of annoyed and upset. There wasn't traffic or anything. I was just suddenly feeling icky. And I realized that the windshield was just really, really dirty and life looked awful. I, I you know, uh, wiped the, the windshield and suddenly it looks better and I felt so much better. And, and eventually it occurred to me that that happens and I, I you can really sense it when you look about uh, at life and about different things when I'm hungry and suddenly I'm cranky or, you know, I just had a bad day or I'm feeling pain and it colors everything else you're looking at and interacting with in that same sort of filter and, and that kind of dirty lens. And as soon as you become aware of that, you can actually do something about that 
and it changes how you relate to to life and to everything around you and to people around you especially yeah that's that's really great that's really great i mean the dirty lens is another way to talk about the you know the what i refer to as the king midas touch you know that really our moods just as you say it's a wonderful way wonderful way to really look at again how you know um, mind leads all things you wake up one morning and you're feeling crappy and it's raining outside and you know you take that mood and you project that you um, plaster your reality with that mood and all of a sudden you know because reality is fundamentally fluid and dreamlike you know the world responds in kind all of a sudden the world is crappy and everybody else is crappy well it's it's well take a you know close look at who's who's the responsible agent in this in this uh, game of moodiness and perception so Exactly like you said, and this really, you know, when I did a very, very long retreat um, in the Tibetan tradition, it was a three-year retreat, which I completed about 11 years ago, and there's so many ways to talk about that. In fact, my first book was a bit of a power and a pain, is a bit of a a biographical journey through this retreat, but really one of the ways I refer to it um, as using slightly different analogy and metaphor is that uh, the, the path of awakening, the path of illumination it's, you know, you can say it's, of course, a metaphor would be removing the, the lenses, the, the dust from one's eyes. But it's also a, a process of detoxification. We're really, we're quite literally addicted. Um, we're addicted to the contents of our mind. We're addicted to this worldview. Um, all these secondary addictions that we know as literal addictions, drugs, sex, um, you know, alcohol, whatever. Those are just epigenetic secondary expressions of this fundamental root addiction that we all have. And when one engages in, in the path of awakening or purification, another another powerful analogy or image is, is the path of detoxification. You know, you're stripping away the poison of seeing the world in this particular way. And the reason I like to use this analogy just parenthetically is because it alludes to the reality that when you when you do detoxify from appearance, we really are addicted to appearance. Um, when you detoxify from it, it in fact can be felt as a detoxification. You you never realize how addicted you are. Uh, just, you know, uh, it, look at your mind and meditation. Um, look at to how addicted you are, you any of us, to the content of our thoughts and minds. And if you don't think you're addicted to thought and the movement of mind, sit in meditation for an hour for an hour and realize the craving, the near lust that you have for distraction. Um, so I point this out because, you know, waking up psychologically, spiritually, it's not for sissies, you know, fundamentally, <laughs> it's a really, it's a warrior tradition and so many spiritual traditions, Don Juan, um, the Shambhala teachings, so many traditions talk about the warrior's path, um, which is, uh, you know, points to the fact that if we really want to wake up, um, you know, to so-called reality, it takes a bit of courage, you know, it takes a bit of exploration, it takes a bit of detoxification. And I think it's helpful to know that so that one can persevere when, you know, the withdrawal symptoms, so to speak, arise and you want to rush back to your distraction, whatever it might be. Um, one realizes that, you know, if I'm going to wake up, I have to pay allegiance to the detoxification process. But um, yeah. anyway, I think your, your point is an extremely good one. It's, it's not only removing the dust or from the lenses, it's actually removing the lenses altogether. So that everything, everything that colors the mind, and you could say, you know, perhaps we have a hundred different lenses in front of us. We don't even know them because they're so close to us. That's the, the paradox. Right. That's the irony. They're so close to us, we don't see them. And the, and the path is about stripping away, taking one layer away, taking another layer away, 
waking, waking, and continually removing these adventitious defilements, you know, kind of a process of debreedment until the mind is so purified that you really truly wake up to the world as it is. And again, dovetailing back in, that's what enlightenment is. It's basically waking up to reality. And the tradition, therefore, just to recapitulate one theme, does two things. The tradition um, works exhaustively to describe what is reality, um, the, the so-called via positiva, and then it works just as powerfully um, to point out what reality is not. In other words, illusion, dream, the so-called via negativa. So the entire path of awakening is uh, can be seen in this kind of um, binary fashion that you know you're you're working to remove the illusion the delusion of appearance and all the while you're trying to strengthen your understanding of reality and every one of the schools in the buddhist tradition really are progressive stages of contemplation meditation on reality and uh, very very often the traditions maintain the analogy of the dream is one of the most potent images to help us uh, wake up from this appearance and into reality. Right. And um, before we, we go into illusory form, which I, I do want to ask you about, um, I, I wanted to mention that, you know, in trying to deal with um, the mental habits and how our sort of mental condition affects our mood and affects uh, our day-to-day -day life, it is one of the main reasons I sort of came back to rediscovered lucid dreaming and wanted to to get back into a regular practice and cultivate more lucid dreaming is because I realized and I became aware how much, and it really is tremendous, how much um, my dreams, the dream even, the dream content and the dream experience, lucid or not, affected my, um, you know, level of happiness, energy, my mood. I would wake up, especially most of my dreams, my regular dreams are, even though are no longer nightmares, I've had nightmares uh, a lot as a kid, uh, which, by the way, happened to, to trigger a few lucid dreams uh, naturally yeah. uh, in childhood. But as an adult and still, most of my regular dreams, despite not being nightmares, are stressful dreams. They're just really random stressful situations, some repeating, some not. Um, and when I wake up, almost every day I wake up exhausted, tired, upset, and depending on the content of the dream, sometimes I wake up really upset and it changes your whole day. And I yeah. remember that yeah. most of my lucid dreams, just out of the sheer experience and uh, exaltation of uh, being aware in the dream, let alone once I start flying, and enjoying the, the uh, experience of, of such freedom, I would wake up with energy, with uh, excitement. Yes. I would just wake up happy. It's it's just unbelievable. And I said, okay, yes. there's something here. Just this little piece alone of lucid exactly. dreaming is worth the practice. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and studies have actually shown that that uh, the vast majority of lucid dreams, and it makes sense because you have control over them, the vast majority of lucid dreams are utterly enjoyable, delightful, and even orgasmic. And, you know, the, the vast majority of, of non-lucid dreams are, again, expressions of our daily mind. It's like, you know, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, the great Bun master who, who's written and taught about this extensively. He says, you know, in, in the, um, the dark room of the night, we develop the photographs taken during the day. So, you know, and this again will tie in nicely to a loose reform as a segue in a second. So it's, it's a beautiful, um, way to work with 
I mean, I like to, I like to think of the image of perfuming your day by what you do during the night and then actually perfuming your evening, your, your dream state by what you do through the practices of lucid dreaming and dream yoga. I mean, really, um, through the laws of uh, what are called transitional karma, through the laws of habit, actually, we perfume our nighttime state by what we do during the day, whether we know it or not. I mean, you know, just like I said earlier, Kabir, what is found then is found now. So with these practices, it's a wonderful thing. You know, we, we perfume the night by what we do during the day through the practice of illusory reform or the dream induction techniques. That colors our nighttime experience. And then just as you said, our nighttime experience, then what does it do? It perfumes and colors our day. Yeah. So this is where you start to see this really elegant kind of reciprocating fashion of how you use the mind in these different mediums to support um, itself. So you work with practices during the day to perfume your night. You have more lucid dreams. Those lucid dreams perfume your day. And then eventually what happens is you develop this very positive, um, virtuous circle of uh, positive feedback where, you know, what you do during the night starts to affect what you do during the day. What you do during the day starts to affect during what you do during the night. And to me, this came alive beautifully when I did my three-year retreat. Um, the last year of the retreat, we do what are called the six yogas of Naropa. And this is really from uh, what's called the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. This is the lineage that articulates dream yoga and sleep yoga most beautifully. And what we did, which is really one of the great months of my um, life, several months, is that all during the day, um, I practice a loose reform all day long. And every night, I practice dream yoga. And it was a, just a fantastic opportunity to just soak in mind and consciousness as it expresses itself in these two different classic um, mediums, but in a way that you could really work uh, back and forth, substantiating and strengthening your experience in both. And, and this, again, is a wonderful segue to the practice of illusory form. Yeah, very cool. So I, I am fascinated by by this practice, and, and in some ways it's sort of like the opposite of uh, state checks or reality checks, because with reality checks, you're trying to check and see, you know, am I, you're wondering, am I dreaming? Um, you know, and, and then verify and try to see if you're dreaming or not, most often to discover that you're not quote unquote dreaming. Uh, but illusory form, if I understand it correctly, is trying actively to see the waking state as a dream. Yeah. Yeah. What you're doing again, and it seems like, well, why, why would you, why would you do that? <laughs> What's the, the hard essence of that? Um, well, there's several things, you know, first of all, when, when you're doing that, um, you're you're actually you're using the power of projection and imputation. You're using the creative power of of your mind in a constructive way. It, it, it's it's a kind of a marvelous fake it till you make it practice because the, again the nature of this world is dreamlike. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't anything out there. That's that's the other thing that's very important. Right. Um, at, at this point, we're really most of our charter is the via negativa. We're trying to deconstruct the source of our suffering, which is seeing the world as solid, lasting, and independent. Um, we're not yet working so much with constructing, or you could actually say allowing the world to present itself as it is. We can perhaps return to that later. But when we engage, when one engages in the practice of illusory reform, you're basically um, working with a template as, as contrived and artificial as it may seem, you're working with a template that's actually in harmony with reality. Um, so by walking around and, and, and actually 
challenging. Really what you're doing is you're challenging the status of your reality by saying throughout the day, you know, this, this is a dream. I am dreaming. Um, by doing that, there's, there's a type of deconstruction that's inherent in it. And if you do that with, with real fervor, and I recommend people do this, you know, um, throughout the day, there are a number of practical tips to do it. But one thing that one can do somewhat intensively is say to yourself, this world is a dream. Um, and work with, you know, you know, one of the tricks that I use that's very, very revealing is take whatever defines a dream for you, which for, mo- for many of us is a sense of discontinuity, a sense of parsed, you know, this kind of broken um, frame, quality of reality. Take whatever defines your nighttime dreams, and for short periods of time, maybe five minutes or so, and, and usually what happens with five minutes or so, you're, you're done with it because it's a little, it's actually challenging to one's ego. You take your nighttime dream experiences, you, you kind of project or impute them onto your daily reality, and it's very revealing in terms of showing us why it is that we freeze the world the way we do. Because when the world becomes groundless, it, you know, the, the, the very, very profound term in Buddhism for this is a very difficult term called emptiness or shunyata. You know, I mean, we could say when we talk about asserting what reality is, well, what we say is, well, reality is emptiness. And it's a, it's a wonderful kind of Zen statement because, well, what is that? <laughs> um, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's, not, it's not nothingness, by the way. It's no thingness. And that's what we're challenging. We're challenging the thing nature of reality. So by bringing our dream experiences into the day, which is the practice of illusory form, we're actually creating a template that matches reality, and it is a fake it practice initially. You, you're not necessarily seeing the world the way it is if you say if you see it as a dream, but it's it's you could say it's a white lie. It's a lie that's closer to the truth. Um, most of our lies are black, flagrant lies. We don't even know we're telling them. You know, seeing the world in this dualistic way. So when we we see the world as a dream, and we say provisionally, and this is very important. When we say provisionally this world is a dream, that is a provisional statement. You can't fundamentally even assert that. It's just a white lie. You're closer to reality by saying the world is a dream, but the world isn't a dream. Whatever you say of the world, it isn't. As Korzybski once said, um, you know, the semanticist, fundamentally reality is ineffable. It cannot be described in words. Science can't really completely articulated, the spiritual path can't completely articulate it. But these are all very powerful fingers pointing towards the proverbial moon. And what's much more important than being able to really completely describe it is the ability to experience it. And in that regard, you know, I think people don't have to explore too deeply to understand that most of our experience really is ineffable. I mean, try to explain snow and ice to a South African native. Try to explain explain the taste of a, a Snickers bar or an orgasm um, to somebody who's never had it. You know, you just kind of finger paint. So what all these practices do is, you know, they point us in the right direction. And then they give us the methodologies, they give us the vehicles, the paths to then go as a good scientist of the mind and find out this and discover this reality for ourselves. And illusory form is, is a very powerful way to do that. It's, a, it's what's referred to as a reciprocating practice, as I alluded to earlier where you take the insights gained from the night, you transpose them into the day, 
You work with the habitual patterns, i.e. karma, that you create during the day that naturally transposes into the night. And both these practices start to bootstrap each other. They start to lift each other up. You get better in your loose reform, your dream yoga gets better. Your dream yoga gets better, your loose reform gets better. And eventually the whole world becomes very seamless, you know. And in fact, for a, for a completely awakened one, they literally don't sleep. They, the body may go into sleep mode, but the mind never turns off. And for uh, being like that, there is no difference between um, waking and sleeping consciousness because the awakened mind, um, and this, this is where it dovetails into sleep yoga, if you want to just parenthetically touch that, this is the quality of the mind, the luminous, luminous nature of the mind that never turns off, it never shuts off. So quite, this is not a metaphor, quite literally, the Buddhas don't sleep. And the reason they don't need to sleep is their minds aren't exhausted. I mean, one of the reasons we have to sleep so much is because whether we know it or not, we're constantly grasping after the contents of mind and reality. Um, we're either grasping or we're attached. Grasping is a more active approach. Attachment is a more passive approach. And we don't realize our attachments until something is taken from us. But it's really like the reason we have to sleep as confused sentient beings. It's akin to being in a, in a gym all day and doing bicep curls, you know, 16 hours a day. By the time the 16-hour um, mark hits, you know, your bicep is utterly exhausted and the mind has, I mean, the body has to rest. For a mind that never grasps, for the awakened mind that is always open, spacious, and relaxed, as, as my teacher often referred to the awakened mind, that mind is not in the gym all day. That mind is, is you know, um, constantly in a state of relaxation and openness, and hence that mind is never fatigued. So it's very, very tricky to talk about markers of progress on the path. But one marker of progress is that you know, very, very advanced meditators, all the way up into a full awakening, they gradually need less and less sleep. I mean, uh, the literature is replete with accounts of very advanced meditators who sleep only one or two hours a night. Well, where, why? What's going on there? Right. It's simply because they're not overworking their mind. The mind is no longer grasping. So when the mind stops grasping, grasping is the, is the active expression of ignorance. Um, the mind no longer needs to rest. And at that point, literally one becomes awakened to such an extent that literally 24-7, constant uh, awareness, constant consciousness, the mind of the Buddhas never goes to sleep. Yeah, in, uh, in, uh, in the episode that I was talking about and in introducing the concept of sleep and brainwaves, I actually posted a link to... Ken Wilber's video where he, you know, wears an EEG oh, yeah, yeah. uh, electrodes and and goes into a certain type of meditation, and you can see his brainwaves, uh, you know, just basically go Delta down Delta. to to, yeah. to Delta, which is yep. w what uh, the brainwaves show in in deep dreamless sleep. And Beautiful. I just actually wanted to clarify. So when you're saying that, you know, the awakened mind doesn't sleep. Um, but the body goes to sleep, so the brain does go into theta and dream, and then delta yes. and deep sleep. Yes. But you maintain somehow, as unbelievable as it sounds to, yes. to some, perhaps you maintain a certain level of awareness of that state. Absolutely, and this is where it's really important to differentiate between. Just like we have a triune model of the brain, as you're familiar, um, many people are not familiar with the triune nature of the body. And, and this is very important because, um, you know, one of the principal dream induction methods from the dream yoga 
approach works with the subtle body. So um, how this becomes important is that the brain um, is associated, as is the body, with coarse levels of consciousness. And as consciousness um, kind of descends into sleep, it will obviously be affected initially by the brain, and that's why you can measure theta, you know, the, the kind of what I call the downshifting from, um, from alpha to theta, eventually to delta, uh, you know, and then the mind just slips into neutral. Um, where sleep yoga comes into place, dream yoga is still, you know, active in, in, in the more the alpha, sometimes even beta phase, but when sleep yoga takes place, you're starting to drop in, you're dropping below the substrate of the biological mind. And therefore, sleep yoga would be, and I've, I've had some conversations with Stephen LaBerge about this, um, and even Ken Wilber, interestingly, is there a way to possibly substantiate phenomenologically, empirically, that one is indeed lucid in the dream, in the deep dreamless state? It's much more difficult than proving what he did um, with proving lucid, uh, lucid dreaming altogether. But what, what I'm getting at here is the mind drops downshifts from waking consciousness, which is associated with the brain, to very subtle levels of body. It, it becomes more resonant with what's referred to as the subtle body. And there's a mind associated with that. There's an experience associated with that. And then even more subtle than that is what's called the very subtle body. And in the, in the, the wisdom, the world's wisdom traditions, every single esoteric world wisdom tradition has some version of this kind of map. So when the mind goes into deep, deep, like even sub-delta or below, then it drops into what's called the, the very subtle or indestructible body. And at that point, mind is no longer limited to the vicissitudes of this physical body. And here, you know, we start to slip into a domain of experience that will either really um, trigger some of your readers or completely turn them off because you start to, I like to use the word subsend instead of transcend, but you actually start to enter domains of experience where you subsend the biological material matrix of reality altogether. You're no longer limited to the machinations of space and time. This is one, one dimension of experience where things like deja vu can come from. Um, in the very advanced stages of dream yoga, His Holiness Dalai Lama talks about this. Many, many masters in, in Buddhism talk about this. The mind um, can actually leave the body in this very subtle body. And, you know, again, this is an entire domain that's a little bit outside of our current arena. You can create what's called a special dream body. The special dream body can leave this body and travel to different dimensions. And, and again, the literature is replete with this, and there are practitioners who can do this. They can, they can go across and you know, um, travel to different parts of the world or even different dimensions altogether. So I, I say this somewhat parenthetically because I don't want to lose all your readers and your <laughs> listeners, okay. but it is part of the tradition, and it's one of the, in, in my program and in the book I'm writing, when I go through the actual stages of dream yoga practice, I go from um, more exoteric or over-the-counter practices, which are really quite fun and highly confluent with, with traditional um, lucid dreaming um, practices, so to speak. And then as the techniques go on, and I, I think I have about 10 or 11 different stages articulated, the practices become increasingly more refined and more sophisticated um, as the mind becomes more stable and, st stable and subtle. Until eventually, you know, one can enter a complete, utter lucidity in the deep dreamless state. And um, I'll come up for air here and pause, but I want to say a little bit about lucid sleep just to show people what's possible because, you know, not only does lucid dreaming stretch the imagination, but lucid sleep is, is where we, we, we almost literally go off the charts. 
and the practice becomes exceedingly profound at the level of lucid sleep. And if, if you, in fact, uh, in the Nyingma tradition of Buddhism, dream yoga is a subset of sleep yoga, um, and sleep yoga is actually the main practice. And if, if you achieve any level of proficiency in sleep yoga, lucid dreaming, you've, you've conquered that. You're <laughs> automatically lucid. Every, every dream that arises is instantly liberated in lucidity, and there are correlative practices during the day for that, which are very, very profound, working with kind of the, each, each and every thought arises in the mind is perceived as a dream. If you can infuse that awareness of every thought with the clear light nature of the mind, every thought then becomes lucid. So it's, a, again, this very elegant way to work with the mind in the dream state, to work with the mind in meditation, realizing they're not that different. And then, of course, taking both those applications and then applying it to leading a much more rich, rewarding, fruitful, and happy life day-to-day experience. So um, I'll pause for a second here, but I would like to return a little bit to sleep yoga before we finish this particular session. Yes, please. Uh, and I, I would say to anybody who's uh, you know f- finds it hard to believe that you can be aware during dreamless sleep, deep dreamless sleep, um, I just think of all the people who found it, you know, unbelievable that you could be aware during dreams and then yeah. had the experience. So it's very hard. I know for the, for the people who've never had a lucid dream, um, I know many people who just couldn't believe that that's possible. And of course, the scientific community until the 70s didn't believe that that's possible until people had the experience themselves, which is convincing enough. But then, you know, Stephen LaBerge and uh, Keith Hearn, I believe. Uh, uh, proved uh, that that's possible for those who have not had the experience. But it's undeniable once you have that. So I thought that that's fascinating. As for the rest of the things that that are sort of a little more out there, myself, I also have a hard time with some of them. But I do find it fascinating, you know, because I, I do like for what what we can have scientific proof, I would like to have scientific proof, but I do find it fascinating that um, people who have had lucid dreaming practices and experience for uh, you know many, many years, uh, like yourself and uh, Robert Wagner and a few others, they all seem to report these sort of farther ex- extraordinary yep. experiences. So I am fascinated by, by that aspect, um, although I know it's harder to, to talk about. It, it is difficult, and, and, and one of the things I playfully say when I talk about um, dream yoga, you know, yoga um, literally means, you know, to yoke or to, to unite, um, and we, you know, there, we tend to assume that yogas are mostly associated with, with physical movements, hatha yogas and physical stretching, and obviously what we're referring to when we talk about dream yoga or sleep yoga, we're talking about mental yogas, yogas of the mind, and um, what I playfully often say here is that just like with their physical analogs, these practices are designed to stretch the mind. Um, and they will leave, if you really you know, contemplate these things deeply, they will leave stretch marks on your mind. They will expand your mind. That's what they're designed to do. And, and what I love about this is, you know, I'm very similar to you, Jay. I have a you know, fairly skeptical background, um, you know, fairly rigorous scientific background. Um, but I also, and again, this is an entirely different topic, but I spent a lot of time with this. You know, science, science has its domain. Um, what's more important than, sci- um, uh, than hardcore science itself, which often slips into what, what we know as scientism, and that's one of the dangers we come up against with this, 
is the actual methodology. That's what's important about science is the right. empirical nature. And the reason I say that is that just like with the Buddha altogether, um, and I, I say this with all these teachings, is don't take any of this stuff on face value. I mean, you know, if you're interested, if it speaks to you, um, explore it. Use the laboratory. The only difference in this type of science is this is a first-person science. It's not third-person science, but it is a science nonetheless. And all the, the all the strands of, of proof are, are available here, just as much as they are in traditional third-person science. So my invitation for those who do have a more of an empirical, skeptical bent, I completely resonate with that. Invitation here is just that. Um, find out for yourself. Does it does it even interest you? Does it speak to you? If it does, go to the laboratory, do the science, and find out for yourself. And then once you have your first lucid dream, uh, something that you felt was you know perhaps unbelievable at first, it's a game changer. It changes everything on the spot. And the next time or the first time you have a lucid sleep experience, it just takes. And this is what's so terribly exciting about both lucid dreaming and, and um, dream yoga, sleep yoga. Even though it does take practice, um, proficiency to develop stability and constancy, as you know, um, recognition and liberation are simultaneous, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. One moment of recognition sets you free in the dream, and it's a game changer. And it's the same thing with lucid sleep. It's one moment of recognition in the lucid sleep state, and all of a sudden you say to yourself, Oh my God, how could I have been so fooled? I had no idea this domain of experience is possible. And you mentioned Robert Wagner's book. I don't remember the exact page number, but fairly early on in his book, as I'm sure you're referring to this passage, he has a very elegant section. And Robert's not a Buddhist, as far as I know, but he has a fairly elegant paragraph or two about his experience in what I would say, yeah, this is exactly what sleep yoga is about. Um, so for those of you who are interested from a non-Buddhist practitioner's point of view, Robert has a couple pages in his book where he talks about his experience of sleep yoga. But let me just say one, one quick thing about this. Um, and it, it actually comes in, a, in an analogy or a, kind of an image. And this, this particular one comes from Arthur Zions, who's uh, actually the current president of Mind and Life. He wrote this beautiful book called Catching the Light, The Entwined History of Light and Mind. And when I read in the very first pages of this book, he, he has this image that completely uh, resonated with me in terms of what happens in, in the, um, the lucid sleep state. And, and the image is as follows. And again, he's not talking about lucid sleep at all, but it, it's completely applicable. So if you can imagine yourself somehow being thrust into outer space um, where, you know, fundamentally, as in the movie Gravity or whatever, um, it, it's pitch black out there. It's absolutely just pitch black. Um, what's very interesting is that um, if there is no object placed in the darkness of outer space, um, neither light nor object are seen. And what that means is that the light of, of our sun and actually, you know, trillions of other suns is constantly flooding the darkness of this outer space. But from the outside, how is it perceived? It's perceived as utter blackness. The minute you put an object, and, and here think image, here think thought, here think dream, any thought form, the minute you put a form into outer black space, what happens? You simultaneously see the light and the object. This is a perfect analogy of what happens in deep dream sleep. And the reason most of us don't recognize this quality of mind, because it's so extraordinarily subtle, and unless we have some relationship to our mind during the waking state, to some extent, or, or, or 
others, I guess, can serendipitously pop into it. The formless nature of our mind, which is just pure formless awareness, we will not recognize pure formless awareness as it manifests radiantly in the black light of deep dreamless sleep. But as you become proficient with formless meditations, these are more subtle meditations, it's kind of graduate school meditation, formless practices, then all of a sudden sleep yoga becomes somewhat tenable for you. Then it becomes actually a possibility. And that is a monumental game changer because if you think lucid dreaming is profound, <laughs> you experience a lucid sleep state, um, instantly your dreams, every dream that arises from that state is immediately lucid. And it, it really changes everything because at this point you're not you're no longer confusing the objects of awareness with awareness itself. And as it says in the Upanishads, in the Kenna Upanishads, really here, here we're working with, as they say, it is that which um, sees but cannot be seen. It is that which hears but cannot be heard. In other words, it's pure formless awareness. And this really, this is where you're working with a very subtle body at the level of the heart. There's all um, other kind of correlates and practices associated with it. But I put it forth to your, to your listeners as, as an invitation for what is simply possible in the arena of the night. Um, you know, they say in, in both the, um, uh, the Advaita tradition and Vajrayana Buddhism that we have it completely backwards. We, if we are aware of it, we are actually the most awake, the most enlightened, in deep, dreamless sleep. We are actually the most asleep, the most confused in what we call waking consciousness. So when we actually wake up um, into our daytime experience, unless you're a Buddha, we're actually the most asleep. We're falling into sleep as we wake up into waking reality. It's a wonderful kind of spiritual jujitsu. We've got it completely backwards. And when, when you discover through the practices of meditation, and you know, working with your mind at these levels during the day, then all of a sudden you realize that um, you know this this world, as you mentioned several times here, Jay, is not at all what it appears to be. Right. And I think that's a marvelous way to kind of summarize these practices all together, that they can completely shape shift the way we relate to every moment of our lives. Yeah, that's. I love the analogy with with space for sure. Um, you really kind of can get the sense that uh, we're always um, observing life through the, you know, the reflection, the objects that we're seeing in awareness, and we rarely stop to really think about the awareness itself. Exactly. And in dreamless sleep, when there are no object of awareness, and there is, like you, like you, you say, there is still awareness. Where right. we we're not used to even registering yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. So what, what what does consciousness do? I mean, what in, in that's in that particular state, what does consciousness do? If it can't relate to it, there's that key word again. It blacks out. So it's the ultimate blackout. But for for advanced meditators or dream yoga, sleep yoga practitioners, the mind actually lights up. And you know, just as one very simple technique for people to play with this, if, if those have those of you who have some experience with with lucid dreaming, there there's one way to do this that's worth playing with. Um, it doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. Is, and that is when you're fully lucid in your dream, um, close your dream eyes and see where it takes you. Um, sometimes that alone <laughs> can kick you back. Sometimes that alone can kick you back into a formless state. And, and very often, it will either drop you into a brief experience of formless awareness or, um, somewhat paradoxically, it will wake you up. But it's one way to play with this during the kind of the context of a normal lucid dream. 
Fascinating. I, I know that a lot of people find meditating in dreams, uh, even, you know, people who don't have all this background, but but do meditate. Um, as difficult as it is, uh, they they report it as, uh, you know, a very intense and, and unique experience. Yeah. And let me say something about that, too, a little bit, Jay. That's a, again, gosh, we have so much we can I, talk about. Um, maybe <laughs> we should do one more one of these things. But sure. one of the reasons that these practices are so transformative is that uh, really somewhat similar to the psychological schools and in fact in fact let me just say this parenthetically this is quite nice Ken well I think Ken Wilber came up with this one you know lucid it's a bit of a suggestion between the kind of the psychology of lucid dreaming and the spirituality of dream yoga he said that you know psychology keeps the dream from turning into a nightmare spirituality wakes you up from the dream I love that uh, and that's really nice because lucid dreaming in and of itself, and again, it's marvelous, marvelous psychological method. Stephen has written beautifully about the psychological approaches. I'm, I completely agree with all of it. I'm not dissing it for a second. It's elegant. It's very effective. It's just that sleep and dream yoga, they just go deeper. Um, so where was I going to go with my original dream? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're, there's, you know, there's so much uh, here that we can, we can uh, get into. I, I, We'll, we'll probably need to do another uh, session sometime in the future. Should, yeah, I had something to say, but um, I can't remember what it was. About meditating in dreams? Oh, yes, that's it. Yes, that's it. So thank you. Sure. Um, one of the reasons that, that um, lucid dreaming at this deeper level and then particular dream yoga, let alone sleep yoga, are, are, are potentially so transformative is that in a very real sense, you're, you're working with the te tectonic place of your experience. Um, you know, starting with Freud from a Western point of view, and you could say really that Freud discovered the, the subconscious mind for the West. In the Eastern traditions, you know, they've been talking about the unconscious mind for thousands of years. So when you engage with these practices, you're working with the tectonic plates of your experience. It's one reason why these practices are a little bit more subtle. They're considered a little, little bit more advanced. But they're also more transformative. And, and several great masters, Namkai Norbu and others, have unequivocally asserted that the meditations that one does in dream yoga, lucid dream state, let alone sleep yoga, are seven to nine times more effective and more powerful than what happens during the day with our daytime practices. And the reason for that is you're starting to work, you know, maybe we can return to this in a future um, conversation. But, you know, and I mentioned this, I think, in my program, the mind has this kind of um, tripartite level, the psyche, what's called the substrate, and then the clear light mind. And the clear light mind is associated with sleep yoga. The bandwidth of the substrate is associated with dream yoga. And the substrate is where um, all the, the, sort of the repository of all our experiences, and this is highly resonant with even, you know, psychological thought. And then if you're working, whether it's deep meditation, deep hypnosis, or dream yoga, you're working with the root, the expressive root of your mind. So if you can gain control over your mind in the, the sleep and dream state, you will profoundly affect the way you relate to your daytime experiences. Because as you mentioned, you know, your daytime experiences are epiphenomenal expressions of what happens with these deep you know, strata of mind. And I, I insert this comment because... It's another pep talk. It's like, well, why should I bother with this stuff? You know, what I mean, why should I? Why don't I just have a Yahoo good time and lucid dreaming? Why, why, why do I have to, 
you know, mess around with dream yoga. Well, if you're totally happy and your life is, you know, kosher and there's no suffering in it, forget about it. <laughs> but, you know, if you've got some anxiety, if there's some suffering in your life, if there's some disquietude and unhappiness and you want to work with transforming it, sooner or later, you have to work with your mind. Um, and one of the most powerful mechanisms to do that outside of, you know, psychology, which I'm a huge fan of, of course, is to work with it through the medium of these meditations and in particular the practices of the night. So yes, they are more difficult. Yes, they are more subtle. Yes, they require more tenacity and perseverance and humor. But they're also potentially much more transformative because, you know, you could say that with your, instead of working with the leaves and the branches or even the, the trunk of your mind, with these practices, you're working with the very root of your mind. And you change the root of your mind, and every branch that flowers from it will automatically be colored and affected. And I really want to finish with that because um, these practices, they, they are difficult. They are subtle. But they are among the most transformative practices that the human spirit has devised. And if one develops the proper view and the, the perseverance, the humor um, to continue with them, simply because you're working with awareness, they are incredibly powerfully transformative. And I think it's really helpful for people to understand that so they can you know, say, well, you know, maybe it is worth playing with this. Yeah, I think most people start off, and, and, and just like me to some degree, with the, again, the uh, just remarkable, like you call it, like the best in home entertainment system. <laughs> The, yeah, exactly. Uh, the fun of lucid dreaming, um, but you know, discover soon enough, or has a, have the potential to discover uh, just the transmor- transformative power of of these practices. And I, I do want to encourage people to to kind of give it a try beyond the just uh, fun, um, you know, theme park of the mind. Exactly. Exactly. And, and let me just say this too. You know, I mean, very there are often times when. I, I will just, I still go back to the Yahoo phase, you know? Yeah. I, I don't want, you know, I'm just, I like, I'm, not too, I'm too tired, or I like, just like tonight, I don't want to be bothered. So then, you know, I, I do kind of return to the home entertainment center, you know? I <laughs> pop into a lucid dream, and I'm a little bit more aware of my motivation. I don't do some of the naughty things I used to do, but I will certainly still tool around for a nice flight, and I'll still do all the totally awesome things you can do in a lucid dream. And just have a kick-ass good time. That's great. So I still, it's, you know, that's the other thing about this thing. It's 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 all about lightening up. It's all about levity. It's all about play, even though there's work involved in it. And very, I wouldn't say very often anymore, but now and again, I'll just say, screw it. I don't want to be bothered. Um, I, I'm just going to have a good time tonight. And, uh, you know, it, it's wonderful. As long as, you know, there's some awareness that's being infused into these states of consciousness, that is going to be beneficial. So That's great. Well, I do want to try to wrap up with maybe a couple questions about um, you know, something that, that people can, can use and do and some sort of tips or guidance. And um, I do want to start uh, and, and feel free to try to keep it as, as short as you can if you need to. Um, I do want to, I have a couple of questions from, from Mike. Mike, who gave me uh, the suggestion to listen to your material. Sure. Uh, so uh, I gave him the opportunity to, to send in a few questions. Um, Great. So let me, let me read this. Uh, Given that the content of dreams is inherently empty and illusory, is there any benefit to dream interpretation? For example, in a good lucid dream where one is able to pass through walls and fire, uh, is, is it also worthwhile to ponder why the carpet was green or why the trees grow through the walls? Yeah, you know, um, there's definitely some validity in dream interpretation. You know, there, there, 
this returns to, or actually doesn't return, but this begs the question of different um, types of dreams, different qualities of mind where dreams come from. So in the larger scheme of dream interpretation, absolutely, absolutely has a tremendous credibility. And, and there again, there, there are various levels here. Um, the vast majority of our dreams, because they arise from the kind of um, superficial level of the psyche, the outermost level, the ego, the ego uh, dualistic level of mind, most of those dreams, which are really most of our dreams, it's just, it's just neurological discharge. It's just neurological noise. Um, you can use those dreams as mechanisms for, you know, triggering lucidity, but fundamentally, in and of themselves, those dreams are inherently meaningless. Um, there's a different strata of dream that comes from the deeper levels of what's, you know, the substrate mind or the deepest mind, the clear light mind can also spit up the most powerful dreams called dreams of clear light. That's a whole different league of dreams. And those dreams are dreams that their teachings can be received in dreams. Those are dreams where messages, again, whether they come from the deepest levels of your own heart-mind or whether they're coming from an external entity entering that, doesn't matter to me. I don't care. Um, if there's wisdom being brought up, it warrants um, interpretation. And with those types of dreams, what I do in my dream journal, I have a special section in my dream journal where those are the dreams I, I, I write them down. The rest of my dreams I never write anymore. I write those dreams down. I date them. Those are the kind of dreams that can very, very honestly be used to guide your life altogether. And, and parenthetically, in the 40 years that I've been doing this you know, um, serendipitously or also through rigorous practice, I have used these dreams to guide my life for four decades. And I still I, I incubate these dreams. Sometimes I ask for them specifically and then I work with them. So if that's what Mike is referring to in terms of dream interpretation, then absolutely there's tremendous validity in doing that. In terms of like, you know, interpreting the colors and that kind of things, if I understood his question, um, my first response to that would be that that's probably a bit of a waste of time um, because the dream generally, you know, it, in my experience, the messages won't be um, kind of titrated through that medium. They're titrated through a little bit more elegant and overt medium. So I probably wouldn't waste my time doing that. But people, you know, there's a, there's a different quality to the types of dreams that could be interpreted. They have they carry more weight. They have a sense of importance. They almost always arise just bef um, or before one wakes up in the morning. So and it's, those it's, are the ones. It's relatively easy to to to, um, to to differentiate. You sort of feel that it the dream was unique or more important or more special yeah, in some way. Exactly. Emotional impact. They that, exactly. They, they just carry more inherent weight. You just you just feel somehow that they have more uh, power. You know, sometimes it can be quite shattering. They, you know, the dream just felt, felt so bloody real, and and you realize there there's something more to this than my usual noisy dreams. And um, there are other factors to differentiate that, but those are some of the criteria that you can rely on. Okay, so let me let me uh, wrap up officially with with these two sort of uh, um, two part question. One, okay. what, what would you recommend for um, you know beginners? Uh, what is the one thing that they can do to get started with all these practices? And then for people who uh, already have a lucid dreaming practice or manage to achieve lucidity on somewhat of a regular basis, what do yeah. you think the most important thing that they can do and benefit from in a lucid dream? Yeah, you know, two good questions. So for the for the more entry level practitioner, really, you know. Um, one of the most important things, of course, is cultivating a, a really sound intention, you know, um, 
creating what, what my tradition refers to as the, the right view. In other words, um, again, it's the idea of mind leads all things. You know, you study it, you read about it, you see if it speaks to you. And if it's like, well, you know, there's something here, you know, there's something here. So you strengthen that view. You read the books. There aren't that many. You read them, you study them, you take the courses, you start to explore it. You start to strengthen the view behind what these practices have to offer. And then really, to me, if I, if I was going to recommend one thing, I would recommend beginning some form of meditation, um, some way, again, of here's this wonderful um, kind of meta-narrative, establishing a new relationship to the contents of your mind. Um, basic mindfulness meditation, There, you know, there's countless ways to learn that. Um, in fact, the, my most recent book, Meditation in the I Generation, I suppose I could plug that, um, is uh, all about just that, you know, entry-level book um, for non-spiritually oriented practitioners, people just off the street, if you want to learn about meditation, I would say absolutely start with that because then, you know, you're starting to work with your mind at a much more intimate level, you know, and really, if, if you don't work with your mind, your mind is going to work with you. I was going to say your mind will work you over. <laughs> um, you will become a victim to the contents of your mind. Your mind will become subject to the vicissitudes of your moods and your ups and your downs and, and there's no stability, there's no inherent happiness. So really, really the most important thing is developing a new relationship to your mind and there's no more powerful way to do that than meditation and it's a marvelous time in the West for that. It's really a revolution in, in the meditation and awareness. And then for those who have some experience with lucidity, then you know I, I would again just um, say as an invitation um, simply start to explore your mind in a different way. Um, you know, maybe not indulge it all the time, maybe not have all the orgies that you usually create, or, you know, I mean, the usual things. That, for those of you who are interested, in, in, there's a Greek myth called the myth of Gyges, you know, where, where the gentleman, um, Gyges, becomes invisible. And then, the, the, you know, the, the essence of this particular mythology is what would you do if you were invisible? And very much that's what takes place in a lucid dream. You know, it is invisible. What would you do? And this is why dreams, the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. Dreams are truth tellers. Even from a psychological perspective, they are truth tellers. Um, and from a spiritual perspective, they're profound truth tellers. So when you watch your mind and you indulge in that, there's nothing you know, inherently problematic in that. It's just an expression of what you're doing during the day. But fundamentally, that will not transform you. That may entertain you. That's fine. If you want to spend your, you know, your life at the movies, that's great. Um, but if you really want to transform and if you really are, you know, if the idea of waking up has any resonance with you, then instead of indulging your mind, you start to work with it. You, you work with it in a playful, light way as a yoga and so you wake up in the dream and say, okay, intentionally, I almost always start with, I want to just enjoy myself for a few minutes. So I go for a little flight. And then, you know, I love the scenery. Then I return to a particular image or I'll zoom back down to earth. And then, then I will do, you know, the next, this would be like step two, is then I'll say, okay, I want to put my hand through this dream object, whether it's a dream wall or a dream tree, it doesn't really matter. And right there, just that alone is very revealing and very powerful because it will reveal to you the, the inherent habitual pattern, karmic propensity, that we all have to reify the contents of our mind. And by that, what I mean is even though you know you're lucid, you're going to come up against that dream wall, and unless you're a rare dreamer, you're going to still bump into it. 
um, it's still going to appear solid to you. Well, why is that? It's due to the power of habitual pattern. So then the practice is, after you bump into it and you smile and laugh, is you go, okay, I want to put my hand through this wall. And then I still do this after 30 years. You know, I will still bump into the damn wall. It's, it's you know, <laughs> dreams as truth tellers. I still take my world to be solid, lasting, and independent. And that is represented in the, even a lucid dream. But what has marked some progress is now I can get my hand through the wall pretty fast. <laughs> uh, and then what happens, you know, from there, then usually when that starts to happen, then people go, wow, this is cool. What's next? And then from there, you know, then their, their books, you know, my CD set, I, I'm releasing an, a, a quite a large book based on this CD set next year through Sounds True, where much of what we talked about um, during this um, podcast will be in, in book form. Cool. And there I go through the other nine or ten stages that people can work through, creating intentionally fearful situations, working with your fear, transforming objects in the dream. Why do you want to do that? If you can transform, if you can take a dream chair and turn it into a dream car, what you're doing is basically, what are you doing? You're transforming your mind. You're transforming the contents of your mind. It may seem like, well, how does that relate to life? Well, the next time you're in a really pissy mood, just like you transform that chair into a car, you can transform your pissy mood into a different mood. Why? Because you're working with your mind. So whatever you do in the dream state, you're working with your mind. And as I've been kind of recapitulating throughout this podcast, whether you know it or not, that's the nature of this phenomenal world is you know, working with um, the nature of mind and reality. So uh, I think that's probably a, uh, enough to get people going. Oh, and yes. you know, it's, it's a vast, I think you start to get some intimation of how dream yoga, let alone sleep yoga, becomes an entire path unto its own. Certain people have natural talents and propensities for it, the gifted ones, so to speak. doesn't necessarily mean they're inherently more realized. It means they have a talent for it. Those are the ones that really should pursue it. For others who do this practice, for, for various reasons, there may be difficulties with it. They can persevere. Even if you don't have success, you are going to start to change things, especially if you start to engage the daytime practices. You know, you engage in a loose reform. Loose reform also is a, is a complete path in and of itself. So, you know, there, there are different, um, the Buddha said there were 84,000 different paths, different practices for all the dispositions that people bring to, to their lives. And dream yoga, sleep yoga, lucid dreaming is just one very powerful way for people that seem to have a predisposition towards it. And if you don't, you know, as, as the Dalai Lama says, you know, throw it out the window and do something else. <laughs> Andrew, we can go for hours, I feel, and I would love to do this again sometime in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me and to us about all this. This has been Phenomenal. Well, it's a delight, Jay. You're, you're a wonderful human being. You've got um, sharp mind, great questions. And uh, if you ever want to do this again, just bring me up and maybe we can go at it one more time. Definitely. Thank you so much. Be well. All the best to you. Take care. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. To learn more about Andrew and his work, visit andrewholacek.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-H-O-L-E-C-E-K.com. You can find his audio program on SoundsTrue.com as well as on Amazon and Audible. And I will link to those in the show notes. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this interview. I found it fascinating. I hope you did as well. As always, you can find me on LucidSage.com and on Twitter at TheLucidSage. Feel free to send me a message, write me an email, and contact me with feedback, suggestion, comments, and so on. 
And uh, until next episode, thank you for listening. Sweet and lucid dreams.